My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Orgasms are awesome, unless they, or their absence more specifically, becomes a source of stress. Therapy, too, can be awesome, but What if you or your partner are about to start, but only one of you is really up for it? And is healing really possible after a partner's betrayal? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so excited to have Shadeen Francis, a marriage and family therapist, professor, and author in the studio with me today to explore topics that often come up in therapy when clients are seeking help in the sex and relationships department. Shadine has over seven years of experience training, supporting, and collaborating with nonprofit organizations, medical schools, homeless shelters, and university counseling centers. She works with people of all backgrounds to improve their relationships and lead the lives they desire. She's also a completely badass human. Before we dive in, a big shout out to today's sponsor, The Pleasure Chest. This month's featured goodie is their Awaken Your Senses kit, which comes with a satin love mask, a feather tickler, and my favorite part, a Pleasure Chest mini massage candle. As it melts, you can use the oil on your skin. It is so, so fun and amazing, totally relaxing. And I think it's a great tool to use with a partner or by yourself. Use it for some solo play, maybe to try some of the kind of feather. There's also like a little kinky wheel you get to use just to see if those things feel good. So if you're new to kink and want to try that, that would be fun too. But the massage oil and the candle are so relaxing and as we know, right? Relaxation sets the stage for arousal. So it's a beautiful practice. The kit sells for $35 on the Pleasure Chest website, thepleasurechest.com. Or you can find a direct link on my site, augustmclaughlin.com, where you can also sign up for monthly email updates. Shadine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I would love to hear a little bit about your personal journey. What did you learn about sex and sexuality growing up? Yeah, I think that I was fortunate to grow up in a school system that actually did have a lot of the conversations that we miss a lot of the times. Um, So I I will say for disclosure's sake uh, that I am from town just outside of Toronto, so I'm your resident Canadian here. (laughs) But, you know, we, we actually did have some of the at least biologically important conversations around uh, this is your body and this is what your body does and this is how your body works Um, and not just focus solely on reproduction um, you know but these are the parts of your body that will feel sensitive anything about pleasure or oh no we were not that we (laughs) wasn't quite Sweden we we didn't quite get that far Um, and so despite having um, really um developmentally appropriate, um, medically accurate information, which 
you know, is is not actually the standard, uh, you know, in the states. Uh, you know, you actually don't have to be giving medically accurate information in most states. Um, so, you know, we, we started sex ed. Um, I'm sure it was called something else. Um, but we started sex ed, I think, in the, like the fourth grade um, and, you know, continued it all the way through to the end of high school. And it was mandatory. Um, but it, it still was very... Um, especially in high school, fear-based. Diseases. Uh, still and very fear-based. I, I can still remember um, one of the first uh, images of a penis that they showed us um, was one that had like the most, like adva- I know now, had like one of the most like advanced, progressed, untreated stages of syphilis. And that, like, they're like, here's a penis. <laughs> All oh of us are like, <gasps> yeah, yeah, so, that would kind of permeate permeate in one's mind. Yeah, so I, I can yeah. still I can still see it. I can still see it, which was probably <laughs> the intention, right? Very, very much so. Um, so we knew how our bodies worked uh, in a grand scheme, and we knew that anytime we wanted to have sex, we were at risk for you know STIs um, or this particular very aggressive syphilis penis. Um, you know, and, and I think that it, it created a lot of shame, one around um, if you were to actually contract an STI, which is like a regular thing that happens to people, um, a lot of fear around actually having sexual interactions with folks um, because you're, one, afraid that you're going to get, you know, as it was communicated, these, you know, lifelong, chronic, terrible infections Um Fears around pregnancy, although it was less clear around, okay, like, are you actually going to get pregnant? Um, And it it made sex feel less interesting uh, in a lot of ways because you're, like, navigating through, you know, all of those layers. People were still absolutely having it. but Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting to enter it from that standpoint of all those risks. I don't know many people who weren't completely freaked out about some kind of thing that they learned or didn't learn. Yeah. Which it's supposed to be this pleasurable discovery and all of that getting mixed together. Oh, yeah. That was never described. So I think, you know, when folks became sexually active and the few folks who actually were able to find pleasure kind of early um, with another person um, were probably very surprised (laughs) that that was like an actual thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know in the U.S., it's more likely that you will acquire an STI at some point. Than not. Yeah, it's like very unsurprising. I wish I had learned that. I mean, I wish we all learned that, you know, because we all get what are the statistics on like pneumonia? Yeah, (laughs) right. And and people aren't as I mean, it's not good to have, but you can talk about having pneumonia on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare for someone to talk about an STI for a lot of valid reasons, because there's so much shame and stigma and people will judge you. So much shame. And you know, you're, you're absolutely right, right? The the statistics would say that at some point in your life, right, you are probably going to either be the carrier or have symptoms, right, of an STI. Um, and my school system did a good job of actually saying that you were going to get one. Um, but it, 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 was a, it was a threat. It, <laughs> it, it was a threat. Uh, yeah. And so basically you were supposed to use that information to not have sex so that you don't. So like if you absolutely have to have it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it, it was basically like if yeah. you have sex, you are going to get an STI. Wow. 
Right. So that doesn't make sex sound super exciting. Yeah. Or um, living with an STI sound bearable. Yeah. Right. Which yeah. is, it's a very regular experience. And so one of the things that I end up working with a lot, not specifically relegated to STIs, we just happen to have this detour in the conversation, um, but shame. Right. That that a lot of my work, uh, you know, as a therapist who works with sexual issues, I'm working really, really often um, with helping folks unlearn shame and move into a place of uh, self-esteem. Yeah, which is so important. What led you into this field? Was there like a an epiphany, a turning point where mm. you went, this is my career path? Or <laughs> how did it happen? It's a funny story, and I'll tell kind of the, the short version of it. Um, I was, <laughs> I had come across late night television. Um, any fellow Canadians or anyone who lived close enough to the border um, would be familiar or might be familiar with the name Sue Johansson. She's kind of the Canadian equivalent of Dr. Ruth. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a, a late night show, the name of which I think was Talk Sex with Sue. Um But, you know, one night, um, you know, my best friends and I were scrolling through television, watching all the shows we're like not supposed to be watching, Uh, you know, Beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy. And we come across this show and I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, In hindsight, it was butt plugs. Um, But she's having all of these callers call in and they're saying things like, you changed my life. Right. One person said, you saved my life. I thought I was going to end things. And so thank you so much for the work that you do. Right. Or you saved my marriage. Right. Or I'm just having so much more fun, like being in my body. And I was fascinated by that. Right. At that point in time, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to be. It was actually pretty young. This was probably the seventh grade. And I didn't really know what I wanted to be because I realized that it was probably going to be very unlikely for me to be conscripted into the X-Men uh, at that point in time. So <laughs> you never know. You're now in I L.A. Still, I still like, you know, like, you know, left that as an, an option um, and, and tried to work so on manifesting my powers. And but... works on the X-Men. <laughs> oh, no, I was actually hoping to, like, become like be a mutant. the X. Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. play the X. No, 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 no. It wasn't it wasn't supposed to be a game. Um, (laughs) There was part of me that had this secret desire that, you know, like maybe one day I would just like develop some powers uh, and be like contacted by like the real X-Men. But when I realized, you know, around the you know third grade that that probably wasn't like a thing that was going to happen to me. Um, My career path had kind of crumbled out from under me. Everyone else had all these like dreams of what they wanted to do. And I'm like, what would be the next best thing uh, to being a superhero? Um, And then I saw this. And for me, for whatever reason, that just really made sense um, Mm. to say that, oh, this is a person that is helping people um, in this way that strikes so much deeper than just like, oh, this is a surface wound that people can see. Um, I recognized that these were kinds of conversations that people didn't get to have because I could tell the feeling that I had as I was watching the show that like, oh, we're not supposed to watch this. Right. So being able to have this place where people were going, where they didn't feel like they had anywhere else to go and say, you changed my life um, felt important to me. So, you know, in at the seventh grade, I was probably around 11 at that time. Um, not really knowing what sex therapy was, um, knew whatever she is doing, I want to do that. Mm. Um, and so I was really able to organize kind of the rest of my professional life in that direction until I actually found the language of what that was. Yeah, some real life superpowers in my opinion. <laughs> I mean, I just think it's one of the most beautiful paths. And I've 
I've been such a fan of therapy for so long, largely thanks to my mom who struggled with major depression Mm. when I was an adolescent. And it was treated like if you did have a wound on the outside. I mean, the way that my parents approached it to the family. Oh, wow. There was no shame around it, which helped me so much when I struggled myself with some issues and Absolutely. and continues to. And I just think it's so powerful to to know that if you need or want that help, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think that when we think about the layers, right, we have sex and we have therapy, right? So two um, very paradoxical experiences of, of shame because we talk about sex everywhere all the time, right? It's literally permeated everything um, that we have, right? It's our biggest marketing tool. Um, It's subtext of a lot of our conversations. Um, It's a lot of the choices that we make, right? And and how we dress and who we talk to and et cetera, et cetera. Um, But then there's also all of this sort of shame and stigma around appropriateness and what is good and what is not good. And um, you know, labels and judgments. Um, and then we have mental health and wellness, which is also everywhere. And we don't always do a very responsible job of talking about it. And it does end up being considered very separate from other kinds of hurts, right? Or other kinds of struggles or challenges, um, even though, you know, sure they have their unique aspects, but, you know, mental wellness is still wellness overall, right? So if you have an emotional wound, right, why are you less able to get that attended to than a physical wound, um, right? And so then, you know, in my work, really putting those two platforms together, right, sex and therapy, um, folks often come in really at the at the bottom of their barrel, right? Yeah, I was wondering about that. I've heard Dr. Megan Fleming, who shares Insight Weekly on the show, has mentioned this crisis point that a lot of couples come to her in that state of crisis. And there are different studies that show, you know, different amounts of years that it takes. Do you find that there are particular themes within those crises mm. that that bring people to you? What are some of the biggest topics that come up? Yeah. Um, so the folks who... Uh, tend to come to me who are in like active crisis, Um, tend to have a small cluster of themes, right, that are at least interested in working with me around them. Um, One is an inability to orgasm, right? That that is a crisis point um, for a lot of folks. Uh, That's not a, a casual thing, which to me really reaffirms, right, how important our sexuality is it is to us, right? That I think it'd be easy for folks to sort of brush it off and say, mm, it's not the big deal. And for some people, it isn't a, a very big deal. Um, but that's that's a, a very big crisis point. Um, folks of all genders yeah, yeah, coming in saying like, either I have never had an orgasm and, and this is incredibly upsetting to me, or I used to have orgasms and now they are gone and I cannot get them back. Mm. Um, those those are really big crises. Um, I also get a lot of uh, folks coming in right after affairs. Uh, so infidelity is is a big relationship crisis. Um, people tend to come in very quickly around those, right? Whereas yeah. the former, they might be sitting on it for a while, maybe trying some things or exploring, um, you know, a- after a, a relationship betrayal, folks yeah. really know, okay, right? We need to do something now, now. 
Yeah, that's interesting because the one can become chronic, right? And and the other, there's probably some sort of occurrence, some mm-hmm. actual crisis experience or happening. With orgasm issues, do you find, and I'm sure it's very different for each individual, but are people often concerned about it because they want that pleasure themselves? Or has it become often a relationship issue where they almost want it for their partner? Mm. I actually see a mix of both. I I see a mix of of both. And um, for folks, sometimes they're on one end of it where I want this for me. Some folks are on the other end of it. Like I actually don't care much, but this is starting to be a problem in my relationship and I'm worried about it. Um, There are folks who rest, you know, in the middle. Both of these are a problem. Right. It can be situational. Sometimes I really want it for myself. Other times I really don't care, but I don't want to keep having this conversation with my partner. Right. So all over the map with that one. And what are some of the common causes? Again, I know there's many. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the biggies? Yeah. Um, sometimes it is a medical thing. Right. So I do stay in close contact with um, physicians that, you know, I, I know and trust um, to make referrals to get, you know, a physical exam. Um, and see if there's something happening hormonally um, or in terms of, um, you know, circulation-wise, especially for men. Otherwise, a lot of times it's boiling down to stress and shame. Yeah. Stress and shame are incredibly unsexy experiences. Mm. So I imagine when they come in thinking they're going to talk about the orgasm issue, it's a gateway to either finding out physical issues, emotional, maybe a mix of all, Mm -hmm. and then the residual ones because shame might cause the orgasm issue, which then causes more shame and this whole thing. Um, Do you feel like there's a a common first step that people take to, to start peeling back those layers? If someone's struggling and they feel like it's all about the orgasm, but they kind of sense, you know, how do you get underneath those things? Yeah, I think it really depends on what folks' goals are, um, you know, and, and so I always let folks know, um, you know, that this isn't, it's not my show, right? Um, so we're we're on your journey, right? You are the expert on your own life. I will never know more about your life than you do, right? So you let me know where we're going, right? And I will help us chart a course there, Um and I think with with that being kind of the, the first step, um, having folks really reflect on, OK, what is it that I want to get out of this process? Right. What would make this time and this energy um, feel worthwhile? Um, I think really helps people to kind of clarify, OK, what am I kind of willing to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and when folks are coming in in crisis, I actually don't find that there is a ton of um, peeling back that really needs to happen because people are coming in very raw. Yeah. Right. When they're in crisis. Right. And again, I'm working with folks around a lot of different things. But if we're thinking about kind of this this orgasm piece, um, folks are often coming in. Right. Having essentially feel feeling like they've tried everything because they kind of probably have. Right. And, you know, being kind of just very, very stuck um, and are really happy to go there. Right. Happy to do whatever they think will help. Yeah. Yeah. What's one big myth about orgasm? that you wish everybody knew, especially in the context of working with people who struggle in that department? Mm, that all of your orgasms will feel the same. Mm. That, that one comes up a lot. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I bet. 
I know that for me personally, it took me a long time to realize that the, quote, small ones were orgasms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Orgasms are fluid, right? So I, I relate a lot of things to, to food. I, I love food. Um, we can totally <laughs> talk food language. I'm with you. Right. And yeah. so I, I think about, OK, let's say you have your favorite meal at your favorite restaurant. Right. You're every time you go there, it's not going to taste the exact same. It could be something about the season that the ingredients are being pulled from. It could be something about uh, who the chef is. Right. So that might be like into your partner. Right. It might be the mood that you're in. It might be the time of day. Right? it might be how hungry you are. Right. If you had a full meal right, right before your favorite meal, right, you're probably not going to be so excited about it. Right. Or it might not feel the same, even if you're like mentally excited about it, like I get about food. <laughs> right. So there's there's so many things that can make that different. And does that mean that the meal is less worthwhile? Probably not. Right. I'm a sushi lover. Right. I could probably eat sushi at any point in time. But if I had sushi like every day for the week, right, having sushi on Sunday after six days of sushi, I'm like not super excited about it. I'm like going to eat it. <laughs> Do not I, take my sushi. I, I still want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, st- I still want it. Right. Um, and I'm going to look forward to it. Yeah. But when I eat it, it's not going to be like, whoa, yeah. sushi. Right? Because like I had sushi for breakfast. And I had sushi for dinner the day before. Mm-hmm. And every day before that. Less anticipation, right? Yeah, right. And so, right, you you fluctuate. Right? You will always fluctuate. Your body is not static. Right? Your body is moving and changing. Our lives are moving and changing. Um, so folks are often chasing kind of the the peak orgasm or that particular kind of flavor of orgasm. Um, and we can still work towards creating experiences that most reliably allow you to replicate that and to have that and to feel full with that. Um, but to notice and recognize, right, the other ones that you actually might be having and, and not noticing um, or the ones that you are devaluing because like, oh, that was a that was a little one or that was a short one or that was a, you know, that was dry one or whatever the case may be. Um, to really be able to, to live in the fluidity of your body and really sort of have this smorgasbord of, of yeah. pleasure. And then when you embrace those that you were devaluing, I imagine they're so much more pleasurable. Absolutely, right? And and I think folks are often surprised at how sexual they are or can be. Mm. That's interesting because it, perhaps of a definition that might have been formulated by, you know, movies they've seen yeah. or the things they never learned in sex ed, you yeah. know, that if it doesn't look like this, then therefore I'm not sexual instead of going, wait a minute, all these these blips on the radar that I was discounting are actually showing that I'm a pretty dang sexual being. Yeah, yeah. right. And and there's so many ways that you can define that, right? And so really exploring, right, the reach of that, right? Because for most folks, sex is not purely a physical experience. Right. Right. So, you know, a lot of folks are coming to recognize, oh, there's something actually spiritual about my sexual experience. Or emotional about my sexual experience or, you know, recreational or leisurely about my sexual experiences, right? Or it's platonic and comfortable and casual, right? Or, you know, my sexual experiences range from being kind of like, hmm, like routine. I went out on the schedule. I don't want to like go without it, right? It's every Thursday at 730, right? To... I want it to be spontaneous. I want it to be unpredictable. I want it to be steamy and raunchy, you know, and messy. Um, but 
not very often because I don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know that there's there's so many ways that we can actually figure out yeah. what works for us, what's you know quote unquote yummy for us, right? What excites us? What's cool for us? Right? What goes outside of the boundaries? Right? What we're unsure about but are willing to try? Right? I I'm only willing to try that once, but I'm willing to try that at least twice just to make sure. Mm, yeah, and that it's okay. Whatever you want is okay. Absolutely, and I'm a I'm a big fan. Um, and maybe this is the millennial bias in me, but I'm I'm a big fan of believing that you can probably have most of the things that you want. Amen. I'm with you. I think that's so true. I personally believe that what we believe about our sexuality is so self fulfilling, yeah. which can be damaging, but it can also be incredibly strengthening Mm -hmm. and to to, to go oh my gosh what if I questioned some of these negative beliefs that I've absorbed then what might happen yeah you know to that point about um, self-fulfilling prophecy I think that if you're hoping to experience yourself differently as a sexual person right quite often your body is ready for that degree of flexibility Mm -hmm. right is ready to make that change that's so exciting yeah yeah it kind of gave me chills that's awesome. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned affairs and people coming in yes. in a crisis point. What's a big myth around those that you feel like most people don't realize mm. is a bunch of hooey? Most people come in actually assuming that they're kind of the only ones uh, who are trying to stay together after an affair. Mm. Right? Because if you kind of think about it, right, if your best friend was to say, oh, my partner cheated on me. Right. Where would you go? Right. Right? (laughs) Get out of there. Right. You deserve so much (laughs) better than that. You should leave them. That's terrible. That's, you know, bleep, 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 bleep. Right. And and that would be it. Right. And you'd be ready to help your friend pack up their stuff or pack up that other person's stuff. Right. Send them some angry messages, depending on, you know, if you have sort of those like Bonnie and Clyde kind of friends, like I'm going (laughs) to get their car. Right. I'm going to like I'm going to make a phone call. Right. I'm going to post something on Facebook. Right. You know, so. A lot of couples come in um, really feeling like we're the only ones trying to work through this, right? Folks don't feel like they can tell their family and friends, which often is kind of true, um, right? But I think people are, are really anticipating that once there is infidelity, right, we are over, one, and two, maybe we should be over, right? And three, we're the only ones, if we're showing up in a therapy office, Um you know, that are doing this kind of the wrong way, right? And so in some of that, there's there's some shame or embarrassment right. about that. You know, I, I don't know why I'm I'm even sitting here because, you know, they cheated on me and I, I shouldn't want to, like, work things out with them. Um, but why wouldn't you want to work things out with them, right? If this is a person that you have created a life with um, or created, you know, mutual dreams with or you really care about or really excited about, um, I'm not saying that, you know, by default you just, you know, make that experience okay. Um, but if there is a part of you that you recognize says, I actually really want want to see if there's a possibility to work through this. I want to try and, and figure this out and heal through this, Um I, I think people are ent- entitled to to follow that, you know, without a lot of the shame and, and judgment that unfortunately exists around it. So I, I wish people knew that, you know, it's actually more common than not 
um, for folks to want to make it work. I'm so glad you shared that. I imagine it'd be very isolating. And because yeah. usually if we hear about somebody have, having had an affair, it's because they broke up and then they could talk about it. Mm-hmm. You don't usually hear, unless it is that best friend or somebody really close or who knows that they can talk to you about something like that. Maybe they know you're like a judgment-free space or whatever, but it's not something that people are public about typically. So that's that's really, really huge. Do you Do you believe that Affairs, again, not to for a person to think, oh, this was like a great thing, but to is it potentially an opportunity for for growth that they perhaps wouldn't have had without it, or at least this was kind of the catalyst? Yeah. The times at which I, I feel that is the most true um, are kind of the most unfortunate um, experiences at which one or both parties were very surprised that it happened. Uh, Where they had no, um, you know, suspicion or expectation or uh, could even imagine that this could be possible within the context of their relationship. And that's incredibly devastating. Those are the most kind of traumatic of experiences, especially when um, it's it's a, a person who finds out that their, their partner, um, you know, had, had betrayed the boundaries of their relationship um, in, in a big way. Um, and they couldn't fathom that, that their person was capable of that um, or that their relationship um, would be susceptible to that. Um, and the, the, the piece of hope that exists there is that they now have an opportunity to explore something that they didn't know existed in their relationship, mm. right? That sometimes there was a something that needed to be attended to that one or both of them didn't have language for, didn't have context to bring up, didn't have safety to dig into, just weren't aware of, right? And so... So that it's not... Because it's the affair came about through something. Yeah. So seeing it as more than infidelity, it more than the cheating, but perhaps the relationship that you had, it existed and it was there, but they didn't know about this yeah. piece. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, a favorite mug. Um, one of those travel mugs, and I joke because we we had laughed about travel mugs earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a, a favorite. Uh, I won't plug the brand in case they want to sponsor me later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> favorite uh, travel mug, and wonderful mug. Love the mug. Took it everywhere. Filled it up every single day. It was my mug. That was my mug. Recommended that mug to everyone. Right. Got a lot of compliments on the mug. It was a good looking mug, mm-hmm. and. At one point in time, I filled up the mug and I lifted it up and the whole bottom, just all of my hot tea, just right out the bottom, out of nowhere, out of nowhere. And I realized that I didn't know after like cleaning everything up and being like, quite frankly, just very like (laughs) just shocked and, and very hurt that like my mug would do this to me. Like, how could you? I wanted that tea. It was special tea. Um really in exploring that and and contacting the company and reading through sort of the little piece of paper that nobody reads. Some people read it. I didn't read it. That you're not actually supposed to put the base in the dishwasher. (laughs) Right? And I didn't know that. Mm. I didn't know that. 
right? There was a way that I was supposed to be taking care of this mug, and I didn't know. So how right? could you fix it? And Right? And, and who would have communicated that to me, right? If they didn't know that, who was going to tell me about that? Right. The mug wasn't going to communicate that to me. Right. Because maybe it didn't know that about itself because it's an inanimate object. Right. And so, you know, as a you know loose analogy to, to some of those cases. Right. That sometimes. Right. We actually just don't know. Right. And it's actually not like personal failing. Like, yes, I, I should have read the instructions. Right. So it's not a it's not a perfect analogy. Right. But. We can only do in relationships the things that we know how to do, right? We learn through people telling us and teaching us, whether that's our partner, whether that's that's our friends, whether that's a book, whether that's our parents. We learn from modeling, so the things that we've seen, right? If we've done some self-work and self-reflection, we get some information there. But that's kind of all we have access to, right? And so if there was something that we were or weren't doing enough or at all or maybe in the right direction, right? Sometimes things fall through the cracks and that is not to remove accountability from whoever steps outside of the boundaries, right? That boundaries are meant to be intended to and respected. Sometimes what happens in those relationships is boundaries were never clarified to begin with. And so it's an accident on both on both ends. Maybe the behavior in itself was intentional, but the betrayal was in was inadvertent. Because people define cheating in different ways too. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right. So and how so, do you know if you're breaking a boundary? If absolutely. You never talked about it? Mm-hmm. Right. And how did you know that you were supposed to clarify those boundaries until either something happens, or you did that in a previous relationship, or someone you know really told you and taught you that hey, in, in relationships, you know, be really clear about what it is the things that you are okay with and the things that are you're not okay with. So that sounds like a really powerful preventative step, but more importantly, a step to strengthen your relationship to work on those boundaries and to discuss them what are some of the other ways to to both strengthen the relationship but also for anyone who because I think sometimes when people who have not experienced any kind of infidelity and they hear people say you know we didn't realize we had this issue they're thinking like wonder if there's an issue like Mm -hmm. wonder if I should look around for an issue Um, what are some of the other things that they can just kind of work on to nurture that strength of that commitment yeah, I think some of that goes to maybe around negotiation, right? So maybe they're not in a place where they are wanting to do more of this boundary exploration work, um, but they're saying, okay, well, what else can I do to, you know, just touch in on my relationship? Um, I think checking in, you know, with one another uh, about what kinds of things that you would like to happen in your relationship, right? You can keep it incredibly broad, right? Or you can make it a little bit more specific around, like you know, like what things are you excited about, right, in the next month, right? That's a really meaningful check-in. Make sure that, yeah. you know, you're communicating with one another and on the same page. Um, and there might be opportunities for the two of you to be doing some negotiation around how you can actually have those things happen, right? Um, negotiation is, is a, a very particular skill, and I think it's such a helpful skill in relationships Um, because, you know, another myth that comes into my office all the time is that, one, you're supposed to know what I want because you love me, right? Love, right, is is a telekinetic experience, right, (laughs) such that if I love you, I know what you need because I need it in the same way at the same time, (laughs) right? Which is not true. (laughs) It doesn't work. It does not work. Which would actually be quite boring if you always knew what each other wanted, thought. You'd be you. Yeah, right? With yourself. 
right? <laughs> and I'm I'm a fan of being with yourself. Yes, right? but, yes, yes. <laughs> right, but it it doesn't it doesn't happen that way in relationships. Um, and the other piece, um, apart from that first myth around okay, love means that you know what I mean. Um, the other piece is that we often feel like we have to let go of things that are different in order to prioritize sameness. Uh, um, and, and I don't think that we have to do that because I think quite often we, we also just lose a, a big part of our authentic selves. And if, if we're really honest about it, when we fall in love with people, we're two different people. Right. That when you connect with someone, you are both very rooted in yourselves as individual people. Right. However strong your connection with self is, you're very much your own separate person. Right. And then you come to you fall in love with each other from there and then move closer together. Right. And so um, being able to continue to hold some of that as sacred in your relationship and negotiate. Right. Is so important. Right. That there are times when, you know, I want to talk to my partner. Right. And they're tapped out, mm. right? And so what do I do with that? <laughs> yeah. Right? How do we negotiate that? If it's really important to me, right, I, I might want to negotiate that, right? Are you tapped out, like, for the night or for, like, a couple hours? <laughs> and also right. I think that can bring up a fear in some people of not wanting to be kind of naggy, for yeah. lack of a better word. Like, if I ask those specific questions, like, well, does that mean you're not feeling up for sex in this moment, or what about in two hours? You know, like yeah. So, how do we learn to negotiate better? If I feel like those are also tools that we're not necessarily given. No. Yeah, I think first and foremost, I always encourage folks to start with yourself. Right, have an understanding of what it is that you need or want, kind of at minimum. Kind of what's your baseline? What would be good enough? Right, and have an understanding of that. Right. In going into conversations, the hope is that the two of you have a basic understanding um, of, of good intent, right? So we care about each other, right? If I need something that is different than what you need, it's not against your needs, right? That something for me is not against you, um, right? Because we do need to be prioritizing taking care of selves first uh, and then extend, right, honest and free and generous mm -hmm. care to other people um, and also maintaining a willingness to inconvenience yourself for the benefit of the other person if you have bandwidth right it's not like oh I was comfortable here uh, so I'm going to prioritize that even though you have like an actual need right so you know needs come before preferences ideally right so so those, those two things right uh, checking in you know with self Right, yeah, first yeah. Um, and knowing what you are wanting and, and needing right at baseline right and then as you enter into a conversation I think some of us think about negotiations in kind of that um, really seedy like I'm gonna start like from the top and like I'm gonna like over ask you know so if we were to think about sex you know you know you're gonna ask your partner I want to have sex for three hours every day for the next month right but actually all you want is like a cuddle like tonight and maybe after like your big presentation next week, right? That actually be 
just very clear about what it is don't make that it a want. game right yeah right that, these bargaining chips right because we can actually have a lot of what we want without having to sort of trick or inflate or confuse our partners into it yeah uh, which can be so hurtful and set up these patterns right where yeah. how do you trust if you're always kind of playing games Absolutely. Right. And it just reinforces this belief that I have to do all of this other stuff to get my partner to um, want to participate in the things that I want and need. Um, And most of us actually are partnered with really awesome, loving, you know, generous, kind people that are interested in your pleasure. Yeah. Right. And even if we have to do more work around how we find the words Right. To reach each other, because sometimes we are operating through these filters where this conversation didn't go well the last time or the time before that or the time before that. And so as you try and approach it, both of you are coming in defended. Right. And so if I approach you. Right. And you say, oh, she didn't come over for a conversation and I show up in full armor. You're like, what the heck? <laughs> right. And so now yeah. now you're kind of on guard, like, OK, what's going to happen here? Yeah. Right. So now you're like, should should I put on this helmet? <laughs> right. Because if you're undefended and I'm showing up defensive, that feels like an attack. Yeah. Right. And vice versa. If I'm coming to you undefended and you put a defense up, it feels like an attack. Right. And so if, even if we're both defending ourselves, we can end up in really painful conversations because all of these postures that we do to protect ourselves really can feel like jabs right towards the other person and so quite often it's really helpful to start that process off in therapy right with a couples therapist um, or a counselor um, or just someone who if you're saying oh we don't negotiate well it's really hard for us to feel like we are giving to each other sort of freely and generously and compassionately um, to have someone who's outside of that dance to be able to see, oh, here's kind of where it, we get it wrong. You know, what what is happening for each of you at that point in time? OK, here's let's try positioning it this way. Yeah. Right. Rather than defending here, what would it feel like for you to be a little bit more vulnerable to hear what they're asking you? I right. Like yeah. So powerful. And I love what you said about, you know, most people are good and most people want the best for their partner for their relationship and of course for themselves too hopefully everybody do you feel like there are another thing we don't hear about is kind of the success success stories from mm, people who yeah. go through betrayal some kind of betrayal infidelity related hurts and i'd love to hear if there are stories or or just your general take on the reward of that work. Have you seen people get to an even, you know, better place after? Yeah. You know, for the for the couples who really, you know, fight through that journey and, and do the work and are really interested in, you know, I, I, I love you and I care about our life together and I, I really want us to explore this and, and work through it if we can. Um, a really common theme that comes up as, as they feel like, we have accomplished that um, is they feel like the relationship that we have now isn't just happening to us. We can actually create it. And I think that's so powerful, right? Because most of us grew up around narratives where, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm a woman. So, you know, I grew up with the narrative around like, you know, watching movies where like, I'm supposed to just like sit around and be cute 
and just like wait, <laughs> you know, for someone yeah. to like be interested and it's going to be, it's going to be magnetic yeah. and it's going to be explosive and it's going to be dynamic and it's going to be all consuming and I'm going to be just swept away and enraptured. Um, and if we were to really think about that, we can start to recognize, you know, how tall of a tale that is because the movie ends there. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know, the writers recognize that, like, the rest of the story is going to be really different. Let's cut it here. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and scene. Yes. Um, you know, because our lives are just messier than that. And, and we don't always fall in love that way. Right. And a how lot chaotic of- would that feel if you were constantly in that sort of punch drunk you know, even if those things did happen where you feel kind of swept up, how draining it would be if you were constant because it's, it's kind of nauseating. It's so unsustainable, <laughs> yeah. right? That like, you know, even major empires started coming out with sequels, right? Cinderella sequels, right? Are telling a very different story, <laughs> right? Yeah. Pocahontas has a whole new man by the second movie, right? So he has the same name, but you know, so she's got a type. But, you know, yeah. recognizing that when folks go through this journey of, oh, crap, a bad thing happened, right? One or both of us made a choice that really, really hurt us. And we feel so stuck and overwhelmed and wounded by this. And I don't know what else to do. The only option that people are giving us is to leave each other, right? To go through this process, right? And and really explore that and see, is there a way for us to reunite and make new rules and make new agreements, right? And really process, right, the, the damage here and work towards a better relationship than what we started with. People feel so empowered that should we make a mistake, ideally not the same mistake, right? But should we get into a place where things feel dry or things feel slow or things feel like they're not matching up well? We have tools now. We have we have skills now to be able to come in dialogue with one another. We actually recognize what our own signs and symptoms are um, of things not being quite right. Right. We can recognize in ourselves. Right. We can recognize maybe in our partners. We can have language to then come together and dialogue through that. Oh, hey, something feels a little bit off. And I notice that you're actually starting to withdraw a little bit, you know, and what we know is that when that starts to happen. Right. Something's happening between us. Right. And so let's pull out this blank tool, right, that we know actually works and is helpful um, or has been helpful, right, and try that. And, oh, that didn't work, right, not a catastrophe. We're going to move on to, right, next tool, right, and next tool, right, and really feel like whatever relationship we want to have, right, is not going to slip away from us or get pulled out from under us. And we can also use that same tools to build into something, right, really, really beautiful and intentional, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah, that's powerful. I imagine, too, because as you were saying, the surprise factor that can happen perhaps surprise both people, right? Yeah. No one expected that would happen. So if you feel like the rug was swept out from underneath your feet and you fell on your your butt, then you then can know that, well, then we didn't have those tools that we get to create the relationship that we want is amazing and perhaps – a conversation that they never had. Absolutely. It can be such a confronting and, and shame-based experience for good people to make mistakes. Mm. Could right? you speak to the pacing of healing? Because I feel like I have friends who 
you know, have had shame around taking a long time to heal mm. in their mind, whatever that means. I, you know, it could be months, it could be years. Do you, does that a, a feeling that comes up in your practice? And what would you say to someone who's feeling like, why is it taking so long? Yeah, quite quite often people ask that up front. Oh, really? How long <laughs> how, is it going to take? How long do you think it's going to take? How many sessions should I buy today? <laughs> <laughs> right, and and so I, I understand where that question comes from. Um, and so my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> don't know. Yeah, <laughs> how, how many sessions do you think it's going to take? Let's start with that and see where we get. <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> right, but, you know, I, I rarely talk about um, you know, what it takes to heal or when you heal or how you heal. Um, if I'm using language around that at all, I'm talking about healing um, as a process because I actually don't see, um, you know, it as a final destination. Uh, I, I actually see it as the journey um, of you getting to where it is that you want to go, right? So I am here in this place in my life that feels desolate and isolated and painful and I want to get to this place that feels fruitful and abundant and free, right? But I have so much pain and so many wounds that I don't know how it is that I get from here to there. And I see healing as that journey. I don't see, you know, when you get there, you have healed. I think the process of getting there is healing. So you're healing as soon as you show up for as it. As soon as you show up for it. Yeah. Because the even the the belief that I can do something about this pain moves you in a different direction and a different relationship around the pain and it mm. actually gives you more opportunity to take another step uh. and another step and another step and maybe you reach a certain place where you start to jog a little mm. and maybe you break into a sprint mm -hmm. and maybe at some fork in the road you actually come up on other people and maybe you have a tribe that's running alongside you Right, that can cheer you on, that can champion for you, that can encourage you, that can coach you, that can condition you, that can strengthen you. Right, maybe you have that one person, your running partner. Right, maybe you have the music that sticks in your ears that helps that journey, right, feel a little bit more bearable, even when it's hard and when it hurts. Right, and so I, I really see healing, right, as that movement. Yeah. Does it always take work in fairly equal measure from both or more parties, depending on the relationship? No. Nope. People are on their own journeys that they decide to take together. Yeah. So sometimes that means, you know, I have to be patient, right, for my person, uh. right, that I'm, you know, I'm ready to run and, and my my person's still, you know, lacing up, right, trying to figure out, okay, what are the shoes that can get me there? Yeah. Right? yeah. And that's not always comfortable for people. Sure. Right to be like I'm. I'm ready to do this. I'm gonna go now. We're wasting time. The sun is setting. I'm anxious about this. I'm nervous about this. I need to get moving. It's hard for me to stay here. I'm meant to be with partners that are saying I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Right. I. I or I. I can't yet. Right. There's some folks that say I want to, but I'm not ready. And there are some folks who actually cannot at this point in time. 
And so a lot of the work is, right, how do we figure out how to take whatever journey it is that we're on, right, whether it's that healing journey or something else, Um, because not everyone comes to me in crisis, right? Some folks say, like, hey, like, we're cool, but we want to have, like, even better sex, right? But how do we figure out timing and pacing, right, around that? Are there things that I can be doing individually that still get me on that journey, but don't create too much distance between myself, you know, and, and my partner? Or can I run a lap? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right? Can I jog in place? Yeah. Can I run backwards so it just naturally slows me down? Right? <laughs> yeah. Because there's other ways to Absolutely. feel fulfilled and and content and supportive of each other. Absolutely. And still really valuing your own needs and desires. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfectly said. Yeah. I know you really specialize in self-esteem. Mm. So before I let you go, which I wish I could keep you here for like <laughs> a telethon, <laughs> what are some of your kind of biggest strategies for improving self-esteem for people no matter what they're dealing with but are just really struggling in in truly feeling good about themselves mm. something that comes up often and i think ends up being um kind of foundational in living self-esteem differently um i don't know if i would say it's like the absolutely most important piece um but i think it's it's crucial in actually making it count in your day-to-day life um is that when we are not feeling esteem or regard towards ourselves we actually don't take good care of ourselves and some of it is circular Right. So if we don't feel esteem or regard towards ourselves, we don't take good care of ourselves. And if we're not taking good care of ourselves, right, we're giving, you know, no fuel or attention, right, or not enough fuel or attention to esteem or regard. Right. And so something really practical um, in my conversations around self-esteem really often start around self-care. What do you do to take care of you? Right. That's an active practice of self-esteem. If I can recognize when I have a need and fill it myself or know what to do or how to fill it. Right. I imagine that can be a surprising question. If somebody comes to you and they're feeling low on themselves, Mm -hmm. I imagine if you said, well, what do you do to take care of yourself when they're listing off all these stressful situations? How do they respond to that question? Uh, mm, well... Uh, (laughs) right I I get a lot of that and actually you know unsurprisingly a lot of my parents right a lot Uh of a lot of my clients who come in who are parents right because they are doing so much care for others um, are not always great about taking care of selves right other folks where I see this very commonly um, are folks who identify um, as being people of color right folks who identify as women Right. Folks who uh, identify um, as having lower socioeconomic status, whether they consider themselves poor or impoverished or marginalized. Right. Those tend to be folks that are doing so much or are required in so many other ways or have just so much load and burden on them that either they have not made time. They do not feel like they have the resources or opportunities um, or they have had to prioritize, right, so many other levels of output that it just feels like like a pipe dream, right? And so really taking time to slow people down and carve out niches, right, regularly, right, for self-care, right, teaching people how to recognize when it is that they're starting to feel depleted. And that piece of the conversation is actually very short, right? If I ask you what makes you feel exhausted, 
They have the answer. Right. You have the answer. Yeah, right? but not for the self-care part. Right. Like, what do I do? Uh, right. What makes th- makes you feel tired? Well, my kids make me feel tired. And my job makes me feel tired. My neighbor makes me feel tired. Right. When my partner, you know, does blanky blank blank blank, I feel so t- I feel so tired. <laughs> right. Or I'm tired all of the time. Mm. Right. And so so folks know right instinctively. Right. What are the big loads? Right. Because you carry them and you carry them very, very knowingly. Um, but what do we do about those loads? How do we find reprieve? And so um, we, we won't have time to unpack it all, but I'll, I'll do the short version. And this is a workshop that I teach. These are trainings that I give. This is work that I love to bring out to people um, is thinking about ourselves along different planes of existence. Right. So conversations around self-care have been, um, you know, really um swept up by marketing uh, as cool th- all the cool things do, right? Sex marketing, self-care marketing, um, body positivity marketing, um, right? So now when a lot of folks hear about self-care, um, I can't mm-hmm. tell you how many, especially women, come in and say, well, uh, I get my nails done, right? And I'm not, I'm not knocking that, right? But there are some loads that you're carrying that a bath bomb isn't going to cut it for. Yeah, or right. what if it's like I feel like spa day comes up a lot. Yeah. What if you don't have $500 for a spa day? Yeah, or or you can't dedicate a whole afternoon. Yeah. Or maybe you don't like the feeling of other people's hands on your body, right. which is real. Totally. Right? Or maybe you exist in a body that actually has a lot of of pain or discomfort, right? Or in, you know, it's it's inaccessible, right, for your body. Right? So then you're like, "Oh, crap. I don't get self-care." Right. Mm. I can't do self-care. I can't take care of self because that's unavailable. Right. And so recognizing ourselves as intersecting planes of being right here are, um, you know, kind of at face value, the the seven that I work with people around. Right. So spiritual, intellectual, aesthetic. So noticing, acknowledging, appreciating beauty. Right. Social. Emotional. Sexual. And recreational, so anything that feels um, leisurely or restful or like a hobby or project, right? So that can encompass a lot of things in our lives. Yeah. Right? And so sometimes you can look at that list and say, I'm not doing anything in terms of my sexual care for self, right? I don't have any of that, right? Whatever that means to you. So maybe that's actually an area where you want to dedicate some focus. Right. Or maybe you're saying, you know, I do a lot of spiritual self-care. Right. I uh, have a meditative practice or I pray or I go to church or I have a spiritual leader or shaman or teacher or resource. Right. But my life still feels really heavy. Right. You can actually be exploring these other places on do I have opportunities to do something in some other plane of being. Right. Because all of them are interconnected, right? That if I am feeling well and full emotionally, right, that's going to increase my availability to feel well and full in other places. If I'm feeling well and full intellectually, right, I might be able to have creative ideas that overflow so that I can feel well and full in other areas, right? So if I'm feeling really stuck, you know, in my social life, right, if I don't feel like I can connect well to others, Right. It doesn't mean that now, oh, that's off limits. Right. If I don't have resources to take care of myself with other people, maybe I don't have friends um, that are accessible or family that I can trust. Right. You have six other planes of being that might be able to either help cushion that 
right? That that place where you're where you're hurting a lot and feeling a lot of burden, right? And or can help elevate right the ceiling of possibility, right? For that, right? That if maybe part of what that barrier is is that I have so much social anxiety that I can't connect to people, right? Then taking care of um, emotional wellness, right, can really help. Or aesthetic yeah. wellness can really help, right? Go outside and take a walk in nature, right? That that can be proven, right? Or has been proven is, is better language, right? To really help, right? Anxiety symptoms, right? Walking and hiking in nature. So there's a recreational aspect. Maybe you take up a practice of hiking and now you have a trail leader that you can talk to, right? Yeah. Or maybe you take a, a class or maybe you join a book club or maybe, right? That there are opportunities, so many opportunities. And so it's no longer about, hey, I have to go to the spa, right? Because for a lot of, for example, men, right? We're not necessarily marketing spas to men. So self care for masculine folk um, or male identified folks are like kind of like, well, you know, I feel I, like they uh, don't talk about it. I mean, I don't. I've never really heard any content specifically geared toward men. The, the one, the ones that come up, um, at least around sort of masculine identified folks, um, are I. I go and have a beer with my friends. So I was wondering, yeah, which is which is not a bad thing. That's totally. a great thing. It's a social right? Moment, right? Or I work out. That doesn't give you a ton of options. Yeah. If your friends are unavailable, you're kind of screwed. Right. If you don't feel like working out, you're kind of screwed. If this is a pain that, you know, you will not produce enough long-term endorphins, right, in working out to really navigate, right, that, like, if you are not intellectually stimulated, right, there's only so many deadlifts you can do, right, to to address that. Yeah, right? and not having shame around gravitating towards something that seems, quote, feminine if you identify as masculine is not – that's about society, not you. Right? Yeah. yeah. These are these are just labels, right? You yeah. have options. And if you would prefer to keep that private, right, fine. Yeah. Right. But that doesn't mean that these things are inaccessible. Right. right. And so my, my goal and hope really is always to help connect people, right, to the possibilities of their life. Right. Mm. That I, I really hope that my work can continue to teach people, right, how to find their needs. Right in themselves and recognize those needs, and then also see how expansive the possibilities are for them to live the lives that they want mm -hmm. and to have the relationships, right, that they've been trying to create. Yeah, that's so inspiring. You are so inspiring. Oh, thank you. Truly, I've wanted to talk to you here for a long time since I, I met you last year, and I just am so grateful and for the work that you do. It's oh, thank you. so important. Would you share where people can go if they want to learn more about you, maybe learn about upcoming events and that kind of thing? Yeah, so I have a uh, newly launched website. Uh, it's you know still going to be uh, being updated and relaunched in a little while, um, but it is up. It is live. Uh, it's shadinefrancis.com. So my first name and my last name, .com. Um, and that is where folks can go if they would like uh, to figure out how to work with me. If you're in the Philadelphia area, you can work with me in person. Uh, if you are looking for workshops uh, or um, if you would like to attend um, a training that I'm doing, I speak at a ton of conferences. So if you'd be interested in uh, coming to one of those, um, all of that information will be there. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Awesome. Thank you again for joining me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This is so wonderful. Now for a bit of Ask Dr. Megan fun. We have a wonderful question from Teresa who asked this. 
So my husband and I have had a lot of challenges over the past few years and finally decided to start therapy. Yay, go you guys. We'll be seeing someone starting next month. There's a waiting list. And I'm nervous because he's only going because I want him to. He said that a few times and said he doesn't think we need professional help. And I should just be more grateful that neither of us are psycho killers or abusive or addicts. Sounds extreme. I know he's usually a nice guy. But in short, I feel like we've lost our connection. We lead totally separate lives. We don't fight much, but we also don't have any intimacy or fun the way we used to. I know I'm vague booking about our issues, but mostly I want to know if therapy can help when only one person's heart is in it. And I suppose I'm afraid we'll learn that this is just the way it is or worse, that we're better off apart. Any words of wisdom would be greatly appreciated, Teresa. Teresa, this is such an important question. I think it's such a special time in your and your husband's lives, and I'm so glad you asked. Just a quick heads up that there is a siren during Megan's clip. She showed such dedication and answering and sticking to her her beliefs and her advice for you, Teresa, that she went right on through. She's also in New York City, so it was like a very classic New York City moment. Here's what she had to say. Teresa, um, I'm sure you probably heard me say, you know, in general, I love every question because I honestly do. Uh, but I actually love, love this question because I think it's an opportunity to um, hopefully really help anybody who's listening take any sort of, I think it's so unfortunate, stigma out of the role of coming to therapy in general or couples therapy in particular. Um, because the fact that your husband feels like, you know, in some ways, you know, our, you know, our relationship's good or it's good enough because we're not psycho killers or abusive or addicts. Uh, yes, of course. And yet, if that's what people think it takes and you've got to be one of those things to be in therapy, like I'm beyond uh, <laughs> concerned and disturbed. So it's really to help people recognize that, wow, therapy is an opportunity to put tools in our toolbox. And when it comes to relationship and skills, you know, we weren't taught those and um, and they're teachable. And so it's such a huge opportunity that when you're feeling disconnected in your relationship and with your partner, it's like I always say that's where the rubber meets the road. Like that's really when the work can just even begin to start to understand the how and why it even looks that way um, because it's co-created and it always, you know, as you sort of unpack it, it always makes sense. And so um, I think at first, the fact that your husband's going to therapy, even if it's for you, is great uh, because, you know, that's, that's taking courage on some level on his part and to be vulnerable and to show up. And, you know, in my experience, I think the only caveat here is just to help him know it's not about checking a box, see, I went, and never go again. It's to recognize, you know, and, and validate and appreciate, say, you know, I really appreciate your going. I hear you say right now in this moment, you're doing this for me. Um, but I really appreciate that because it's really going to give us an opportunity to learn to communicate in a different way. Um, and, you know, just offer up that thanks. And, you know, hopefully... Uh, you can get his buy-in to see the value that uh, couples therapy absolutely can bring you both. Um, because, listen, I, you know, often, you know, Gottman says the statistic is couples are in conflict, uh, seven years in conflict before they come into couples therapy. And I can tell you that's way too long, right? That, you know, I wish that prevention sells, right? That people before they get married or, you know, as newlyweds and they're still in a romantic love phase, ideally they'd be going to couples therapy workshops and, and learning about relationship skills so that they don't get into sort of the patterns that I think, you know, 
that we sort of say the nature of relationship is rupture and repair, that the nature is that you're going to fall out of sync. There are going to be frustrations. And it's all about learning how, how we respond and handle that. And because when you say, you know, this two separate lives, it touches something deep for me, you know, a book that I wrote is called Invisible Divorce and it's available on Amazon. And, you know, I see so often couples that are staying together, um, you know, because they don't want the shame of stigma of divorce. It could be for the children. It could be for religious reasons. It could be for financial reasons. So they're staying together, but they, there's nothing worse in my mind than being together and feeling so alone. And you're describing that quality of living separate lives. And it doesn't have to be, you know, about the fighting and, and it doesn't have to be that level. Just, but quality, you know it, you're feeling the, the disconnection. Um, and that is the opportunity. You know, in this case, it's not a crisis. It's not an addiction. It's not an affair. It's just a gut feeling of like, I know it can look and feel better than this. And I, you know, I think it's just amazing that you're um, taking the step to go to couples therapy and to recognize that even when and if, in my mind, worst case scenario, you're the only one whose heart is fully in it. One person absolutely can turn the tide in the relationship as, as long as you're doing that consistently. Um, and so a resource I want to give you around that is um, Stephen Stosny wrote this book, How to Improve Your Marriage Without Even Talking About It. Um, because again, when if your husband continues, that would be fabulous. I think you would get, uh, you, you'd get there further and faster. Um, if you know you had both of your buy-in, but I can honestly say, if even one of you does what I call a hundred percent of your fifty percent, that in and of itself is enough to turn the tide, uh, because it's it's a shift in the energy that moves from um, sort of a, a downward spiral that feels like a lose-lose to creating in the relationship what, what what is connecting and is the law of attraction and feels like the win-win and it's how and why the two of you came together in the first place so um like i said i can't say enough how thrilled i am and i know it's not easy to get to this place to sort of seek therapy um but kudos that hopefully that it's not been seven years and it's not the crisis and that he's willing to go with you those are all great first steps and uh you know as always i'm really excited to hear how this goes Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I so appreciate your insight as always. I loved everything she had to say. I completely agree that, you know, it takes some amount of courage to go and do something that you are feeling resistant towards. So, you know, the fact that he is at least willing says something, you know, and I have to wonder if maybe his discomfort and feeling a bit maybe maybe even self-conscious is coming out as defensive or, or sarcastic because of those stigmas that Dr. Megan mentioned, you know? And I feel like many times, you know, men are not as encouraged to explore their feelings and be vulnerable. And by asking him to come into this therapeutic space, you're really asking him to be vulnerable too. So it might be kind of scary, but that's also where you know, the opportunity for the most growth comes when we're vulnerable together. So I I imagine that there are benefits you haven't even fathomed yet that could come from this. And and I also think, you know, it's it's good to remember you're gonna be in a professional's office working with somebody who is so skilled at addressing emotional discomfort. So you could even start your first session with talking about 
the differences in, in your feelings and attitudes about therapy. You know, I'm sure your your therapist will know best and will be able to guide you. And as Dr. Megan said, you know, it's even if one of you gives 100 percent, that's that's something that's big. You know, we can only account for our ourselves. We're, when we're in a relationship, obviously the, the partnership matters hugely and it's it's a team effort. Um, but sadly, we can't get somebody else to like change, right? So I just commend you for taking these steps, for really working toward a healthier, happier, more intimate connection that that you had before. I think that's beautiful. And I also just have so much love and, and compassion for you knowing that it's even harder knowing that you're getting help, but the partner that you're getting help with is maybe not so excited. So I think that both of you bringing in your challenges and all of your strengths and obviously the commitment that you still have is is going to be huge. I wish you the very, very best. Thanks again for asking the question. If you have a question for Dr. Megan or for me, please contact us through our websites. Hers is greatlifegreatsex.com. I'm at augustmclaughlin.com. Just hit that contact tab. And if you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes if you haven't and leave us a simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.